Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu this week, how used fruits can suck up toxins. China's officials meet reality television, and our analysis about what makes a hit show on Broadway. But first, Divided We Fall was our cover line this week. As the vote to decide Britain's membership of the European Union draws ever closer, our cover leader laid out the economist's stance in full. Leaving the European Union would diminish both Britain and Europe, and Brexit would be bad news for us all. The peevishness of the campaigning has obscured the importance of what is at stake. A vote to quit the European Union on June 23rd, which polls say is a growing possibility, would do grave and lasting harm to the politics and economy of Britain. Yet the consequences of this decision will stretch far beyond the confines of the island. The loss of one of the EU's biggest members would gouge a deep wound in the rest of Europe. Those who wish Britain to push further adrift from institutional Europe believe it would free the country from the shackles of bureaucracy. Quitting the sclerotic, undemocratic EU, the Brexiteers say, would set Britain free to reclaim its sovereign destiny as an outward-looking power. Yet we asserted that closing the country off would create a shriveled version of its former self. If Britain leaves the EU, it is likely to end up poorer, less open and less innovative. And even if Britain does leave, it would remain in Europe nonetheless. The lesson going back centuries is that because Britain is affected by what happens in Europe, it needs influence there. And just for the sake of extra clarity, our vote goes to remain. You can read all of our referendum coverage, including our briefing this week and an essay on the meaning of Europe, on our website. It's such a simple yes-no referendum, and the power lies firmly in the hands of the people. Yet while a simple paper vote in Britain may suffice, over in our China section, a more contemporary take on politics is being tried out. As an article explained, officials are dabbling in reality television, putting an extra dollop of public into public policy. China doesn't have free elections. It has reality television instead. The latest such show even has the flavour of a political contest. The competitors are all high-ranking officials. Regardless of their stature, they have a tough crowd to impress. In the show, local cities bid to play host to a tourism development conference. The contestants have to tell four judges why their city is such a great place, in front of a studio audience of 100 people and a panel of experts. After that, the public decides who has the X factor for urban planning. Many of the officials have taken to the programme like naturals. The mayor of Yangchuan City learned a bit of English to spice up his bid. Seeing is believing, he said. Inspired. The deputy mayor of Lin Fun handed out virtual reality glasses to the judges as part of his pitch. 
It worked. He won his round. But hang on, reality TV and politics. Haven't we heard this somewhere before? Perhaps the idea will catch on and some reality television host will one day make the great leap into nationwide politics, perhaps even running for president. Oh, wait. On swiftly then to our United States section, where the Donald might have found himself in a little hot water. And if it isn't boiling just yet, it's certainly simmering. As an article explained, Russian hackers found their way into the Democratic Party system and uncovered a file on Mr Trump, which he may prefer to be kept in the dark. The Democratic National Committee, or DNC, revealed on June 14th that two groups of Russian hackers had infiltrated its computer systems and snooped on its communications for almost a year. And one had managed to nab an opposition file on Donald Trump going back many years. Given that Mr Trump has so far been accused, with varying degrees of certainty, of hiring illegal immigrants, paying no tax driving his business's suppliers to bankruptcy by not paying them, interacting with the mafia and groping women. The mind boggles. What was the DNC holding back? Whether or not we ever find out, what's evident now is the dichotomy between the hackers' strength and America's cyber defence. The DNC has now joined a distinguished list of American organisations embarrassed by foreign hackers. The White House, the Office of Personnel Management the State Department. And it isn't just organisations feeling the heat. The revelation is especially unwelcome for Mrs Clinton because it also recalls her own slapdash cybersecurity regime. We move away now from the drama of political espionage and head straight to the home of theatricals, Broadway. Our business section dug into the successes of showbiz to analyse the art, science and sheer pizzazz needed to create a hit show. No film has ever banked $1 billion at the box office in North America. But three musicals, The Phantom of the Opera, The Lion King and Wicked, have exceeded this benchmark on Broadway, admittedly over long runs. But such magic sadly doesn't grace every stage. Just one in five shows make a profit. And musicals, though usually far more lucrative than straight theatre, are lucky if they run for six months. So what can we learn from the brilliant and the blunderous? A little data might help. The Broadway League, a trade group, has published weekly revenue and attendance figures for every show going back to 1984. And we analysed it so you don't have to. A couple of findings stood out from the crowd. One is to put successful films on the stage. Disney's The Lion King has delivered steady profits since 1997. The circle of life indeed. And the other key component, a big name draws a big crowd. The presence of a well-known actor can be expected to elevate a musical's probability of selling out in its opening week from 21% to 59%, while an A-list actor can bring the odds up to 92%. And if you fancy doing a little more data analysis yourself, you can find all of it, complete with an explanation as to how we broke down Broadway, on our website. And do let us know what you find. You might also want to listen to our Economist Asks with Andrew Lloyd Webber, a kingpin of Broadway. Speaking of data, there seems to be a lot of it about, until there isn't, as an article in our finance section explained. Although trade in goods and services is sluggish, International flows of data are exploding. According to the McKinsey Global Institute, a think tank within a consultancy, data zipped across borders at a rate of 211 terabits per second in 2014. And to put that flow into perspective, that is equivalent to 1.3 libraries of Congress per second. 
and 45 times more than in 2005. So it's fair to say we have a boom on our hands, but quantifying and measuring these flows is a bit tricky, as our article explained. There is no clear correlation between the volume of data and its value. If growing data volumes reflect growing cat video consumption, then so what, asks Robert Atkinson of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. And perhaps more fundamentally, no one quite knows how much the data are worth. Data are rarely valuable in themselves. They tend to generate value only indirectly. When cash is so disconnected from data, teasing out the latter's value requires lots of head-scratching. Drawing the meaning and worth out of data troves may feel like trying to get blood from a stone, but how about trying to get proteins from one? Moving through to our science section, an article detailed some ingenuity from the Middle East, where Syrian scientists are using their used fruits to suck toxic materials out of water. To discover how to use a waste material to clean up hazardous chemicals is a notable achievement. To do so while working in a war zone is doubly impressive. Yet a researcher and his team in Damascus and Europe have gone against the odds and what they found is... ...the way to use the stones or pits of dates, a waste product of the fruit packing industry, to clean up dioxins, a particularly nasty and persistent type of organic pollutant. While date stones are usually discarded unwanted by the bucketful, the researchers looked beneath the surface and found droplets which package the oil within. Besides oil, these droplets contain special proteins that help to hold them together. And each droplet is surrounded by a membrane composed of a substance called a phospholipid, which, unlike oil, is attractive to water. And if such water were, say, full of pollutants... Once the dioxins are inside the droplets, their affinity for the oil is such that they never leave. Disposing of them is just a matter of scooping up the droplets, which will eventually rise to the top of any water containing them, and destroying them safely in, say, a furnace. A date with progress indeed, and the march of science continues, but will it ever end? That question was wrestled with in our Books and Art section, which reviewed a new work by Marcus de Sotoy about the boundaries of scientific discovery, what they are, and whether we'll know if we can ever reach them. Everyone by nature desires to know, wrote Aristotle more than 2,000 years ago. But can we know it all? Or are there practical limits to consider? In theory, if you throw a die, Newton's laws of motion make it possible to predict what number will come up. But the calculations are too long to be practicable. So maybe our old friend quantum physics can help. The more you know about where an electron is, the less you know about which way it is going. Even scientists find this weird. As Niels Bohr, a Danish physicist, said, if quantum physics hasn't profoundly shocked you, you haven't understood it yet. OK, so what about sinking into the safety of mathematical truth? Sadly, even here there are limits, it seems. Mathematicians have shown that some theorems have proofs so long that it would take the lifetime of the universe to finish them. Despite all this, the book ends on a note of optimism. There may be things people will never know, but they don't know what they are. And ultimately, it is the desire to know the unknown that inspires humankind's search for knowledge in the first place. You can hear Marcus de Soto talking to me about his ideas 
on The Economist Asks, and also you might like to dig into Babbage, our weekly quest for scientific knowledge. I'm Anne McElvoy, that was our tasting menu, and do send us your feedback via email, radio at economist.com, or on Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.